We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Open your Bibles to Romans 9, 19 through 29. Romans chapter 9, 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. For the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I was in third or fourth grade. We lived in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, our house, across the street from our house, had a, a, just a long hill going down to a, a creek, a more of a drainage ditch, if you will. It actually had about two feet of concrete it poured down the middle of it. It was a spillway for water that would flow off the streets. And, and most of the year, this would be just, you know, very, very shallow. We'd go down there and would hunt for crawdads and grab snapping turtles and, and all that sort of thing. And, but there were a few times a year that it would rain really hard and it would raise so high that, that neighbors would actually put jet skis on it and ride in between the houses on this creek that ran through the neighborhood. One of those particular days when it was low, uh, my, my dad and I were playing baseball, and I happened to get a hold of the ball that day and hit it across the, the creek. It's the, probably the only time in my life I ever got a hold of a baseball and hit it far, but it went across that creek, and my dad said, Josh, go get the baseball. So I run down to the water, and I look at it, and I'm, you know, I'm in third, fourth grade, and it, it just looks a little bit too wide to give me confidence in stepping in it. I didn't want to get my shoes wet, for sure, or jumping over it. There's moss on that concrete, right? That's slippery. I had fallen several times, cracked my rear several times on that. I didn't want that to happen, and so I, like, refused to jump over this creek to go get my ball. So my dad walks down there, my dad's 6'2", a rather strong man, and he walks down, he just puts one foot on one side of it and puts the other foot on the other side. Yes, it was that narrow, and I was still that afraid to jump over it. But he puts one foot on one side, one on the other, and he reached out his hand, he goes, do you trust me? I said, no. He asked me again, do you trust me? I said, no. And my dad was so much patience because he wanted me to have the joy of going and getting the ball. Maybe he didn't want to go up the other side of the hill himself and get the ball. Maybe a little selfish there. But he wanted me to have the joy of going to get the ball. And he wanted me to have the lesson of trusting him. Just waited. Never said anything else. Finally, I reached out. I grabbed his hand and I jumped. And my six-inch jump became a flight over those, that, that small creek as my dad's strong arms just lifted me over and put me down. I went and got the ball. And on my way back, it was more of like a leap into, you know, trusting him. Fast forward a couple years. We're not at that creek, but we're at a river in Arkansas trout fishing. 
And we had a campsite and we waded across the river. The river is about as wide as this room. We wade across the river and we walk down this trail and we go to this fishing hole where we love to go and fish. And we stood there fishing at this fishing hole. But as we were there, we realized this water that was normally about thigh deep was becoming waist deep. And then becoming a little deeper than that. And what, the river was beginning to rise. We were far enough downstream, we couldn't hear the alarms from the dam. So we got out of the water, we walked back down the trail, we were stranded kind of in this peninsula out in it, so we knew we needed to get across to the, to the campsite so we could get to freedom, but the water was a little too high at this point for me as a 13-year-old, 12-year-old, somewhere in there to now walk across my own. So my dad walked, he looked at me, he said, he's way here. He walked across this riverbed, got to the other side, got a winch, unwound it, came back across, anchored himself into the gravel riverbed and said, hold on to the winch and walk across. So I held on to it. I edged my way across. My feet swept out from underneath me, taken down by the stream, but I held on to that winch and I made my way across before my dad was able to come and join me. Romans 9 is a passage that for some of us feels like a creek, just a couple feet wide. We could jump across it. It's, it's not that hard to swallow. But for some of us, it feels like a river that's rising and actually bringing threat to our faith. I, I know this out of many conversations I've had, a lot of conversations this week with some of you, that it feels threatening to swallow Romans chapter 9. And my hope as we continue this journey through it is that what we would see God doing in Romans chapter 9 is reaching out his hand to us and saying, trust me. Trust me. Just as the context of trusting my father with the small creek gave way to the ability to trust him with the large river, I pray that the way that the Lord has unpacked his love and grace and mercy for us through eight chapters of Romans gives us the ability to trust him now. I believe there's reason he doesn't just start with Romans 9 at the beginning of Romans. So let me tell you about the doctrine of election and we'll go from there. But instead, he starts with our need and God's faithfulness to meet our need in salvation. And he brings us to this. Not only for this, this isn't the pinnacle of it, It's part of a path. He's taking us on a journey. If you remember in context, Paul's writing to the church of Rome and the church in Rome has begun to be more and more divided, racially, ethnically, um, based Jew and Gentile. And so Paul's writing to unify this church. And his his mode of unification is not, so here here are three steps. First, you need to have more potluck dinners, right? You, you, You need to get together and have more social events. You need to be in the room and laugh with each other. That'll help unify you. He goes, no, like what will unify us is the gospel because the differences you have are real. We don't want to erase those, but we want to go, there's something deeper than all of those differences that brings unity to us. And it's the gospel and our need of the gospel. And so Paul unpacks the gospel for them in a desire to bring unity among them so that he, they may then send him, if you remember, with the gospel. We've referenced this, but we've not gotten to it yet. It's later in Rome, in Romans. He wants them to send him. He wants to come visit them, and then he wants them to send him on to Spain with the gospel. So Paul's writing this letter to this church to unify them around the gospel so that they might send him out with the gospel. And in the midst of this, we find ourselves in Romans 9. Now in Romans, the first couple chapters of Romans, Paul unpacks for them their deep need, 
right? Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, you come to this in a place of need. Neither one of you have an advantage. Jews, you have the law of God. You have the prophets of God. You have no advantage. Unless you are saved through faith in Christ, there's no hope for you. Just having the prophets, just having your heritage, just having the religious background you have doesn't save you, he says. You need, you need Jesus. Gentiles, you too are at no advantage. Just because you don't have the law and just because you didn't have the prophets, you can't just claim innocence. Oh, I didn't know there was a speed limit. Sorry, officer. You, you're still guilty and you need saved through Jesus. This is what he's unpacking at the beginning of this. And then as he moves forward, he explains for us the salvation in Jesus. And we'll look at this more next week specifically because next week's text is about being saved rightly through faith in Jesus, right? Right faith in Jesus. You can't just have some random faith in Jesus. It has to be the right faith in Jesus. He unpacks this for us throughout Romans. You have to believe that Jesus is the son of God, sent by God to be born truly as man, truly man, truly God, perfectly pleasing to God, both in acts and in heart, perfectly obedient, goes to the cross, dies on the cross, not because of any sin he had done, but because of the sin of those whom he would save. He takes the penalty for their sin. God's wrath crushes him on the cross for someone else's sin. And then the, the grace and the kindness that was, or the, the kindness that was due Jesus, the riches of that kindness that were due Jesus, go to those whom he has died to save. He's buried, he rises again, defeating sin and death, promising us who believe in him life. So Paul unpacks this and goes, we're all in this desperate place of need and there's only one answer that all of us can hope in. It's Jesus, it's the only, the only way. And from this, then he gets into passages where he talks about those of you who have now received life through faith in Jesus, stop living as if you're still dead. Right? You were a slave to sin, not anymore, stop sinning. You were dead, to, dead in your sin, not anymore, start living. You were in debt to sin, not anymore, walk in freedom. And he says the spirit of God in the, in the beginning of chapter eight, then he talks, begins talking about life in the spirit. And he goes, those who have, have faith in Christ, though you should keep walking in obedience, you won't, but don't fear. There's no condemnation now. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's also suffering in your life, he says. But rest assured, your suffering will end. There will be a day when God will crush the suffering, end it, and he'll bring to you perfect joy and peace because you are his son, his daughter, and heir to his very kingdom and all of his promises. And from this, questions arise. The Jewish Christians there in Rome are sitting around, looking around, seeing that there are more and more Gentiles coming to faith. And less and less Jews believing in Jesus. It seems like almost every Jew they know is not believing in Jesus. There's very few who are. And Paul's unpacked all of this going, trust Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He has promised to save and he will save. And they're looking around themselves at their friends, at their neighbors, at others. And they're going, but they're not believing in Jesus. He's not saved them. And it begins to raise questions in them. Questions like, has God failed to keep his promise to Israel? God promised to be their God and for them to be their, his people. Has he failed in that? And if God has failed in that, then is he trustworthy to save now? Can I trust him with my salvation? 
Can I trust him with the salvation of my children? Can I trust him with the salvation of those I share with? If he's failed at keeping his promise to Israel, what makes me think he's trustworthy now? And to these, Paul answers. He says he is trustworthy to save because he has not failed to keep his promise to Israel. And Paul lays forth the argument that not all of Israel is truly Israel. Pastor Sam walked us through this last week. Right? It's not your birth or your father's or your grandparents or your culture which saves you, but it's faith in Jesus, which comes by God's choosing. Both Ishmael and Isaac were sons of Abraham, but God did not make his promise with both, only Isaac. Both Jacob and Esau were Isaac's sons, but God did not make his promise with both. Rather, it was Jacob whom he showered his saving love on. Therefore, God hasn't failed to keep his promises He's not failed to keep his promises to Israel. He's kept his promise to those whom he chose before the foundations of the earth. He's kept his promise to those whom he made his promise to. But as you can expect, this raises more questions. The hearers hear more questions come. Questions like, well, if God hasn't chosen to save everyone, then is he still good? Is he he still a good God if he hasn't chosen to save everyone? Or can, can he do that and still be good? How can those who are unbelievers, this is the question we see in verse 19 today, how can those who are unbelievers be blamed for their unbelief if it's God who chooses who has faith? It doesn't seem very fair, God. They're not actually the ones to blame. It sounds more like you are. This is the river that we cross in Romans 9. And it's my prayer that we would see the caring eternally wise, all good, all loving, all just, all righteous hand of God stretched out to us and say, trust me, trust me in this. Nine, 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Pastor Sam jumped ahead last week into this and referenced this. His response, Paul's response, sounds awfully harsh, does it not? Paul, I've got a question. And Paul goes, who are you to have a question? But, but I, want, I want us to, to, to see for a moment that there's a difference here between questions and challenges. Right? We see the scriptures full of men who have questions. David in the Psalms is full of questions. How could you? Where are you? Where were you? What were you doing? Are you coming? Questions for understanding. Questions because you, your heart just feels like it's discombobulated in this moment. It's just a mess. I, I can't untangle my emotions and my thoughts and my feelings and my worldview with this. I have questions. And to those of you who are asking questions, I say, good, ask questions. Questions are good. Questions lead to answers. The truth's not to be afraid of here. Ask your questions. Seek answers. We would love to walk with you through those answers. I'd even encourage you to ask those questions in community, not in isolation. Your mind gets crazy in isolation. 
and prideful. Ask questions in community. But what Paul's dealing with here is a challenge. It's the heart of a man that goes, mm-mm, no way. There is no way, God, for you to do that and it to be just. If that's the way that you are, uh-uh, I want nothing to do with you. If that's the way that you are, you're wrong. And it's to these challenges that Paul responds and he simply says, tell me, who are you? Who are you to challenge the eternal God? Who are you to challenge the God that at his very nature is good and at his very nature is kind and at his very nature is just and at his very nature is loving? His very nature, he's wise. Who are you to judge him? You're a man. You're a woman. You have 29 years, 37 years, 52 years. Do you really think that somewhere along the line in your 52 years, you picked up some wisdom that God doesn't have? This is his question. And he uses an illustration of a potter in clay. He says that God is the potter and we are the clay, right? God's the creator and we're the creation. And at first, perhaps our, our, our hearts want to reject because at this moment, many of our hearts are just already on edge. We want, so are you saying I'm just dirt? It's how God sees me and personal. I'm just a piece of dirt he can toss around. And those all illustrations break at some point. Paul's not saying we're just dirt in an impersonal way to God. His point is that God is the creator and we are the created. And the creator has the right to make what he creates in the way in which he wants to make it for a purpose in which he has. And what we want to do is we're going to go, hold, hold up. I, would, I want to be a vase with beautiful flowers in it. And you made me a bowl for washing feet. I don't want dirty water. I want, I want pretty flowers. And he goes, the, the clay doesn't get to say what it wants. The potter makes it. And he's wise to do so, and he has reason to do so, and he's right to do so. He says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? What is the, um, what, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? Pay attention to the words the same clump, one lump, clay. These aren't just castaway words in the midst of his conversation. They're theologically rich. It's reinforcing what we talked about even last week, that God doesn't look ahead and go, well, you were made out of good clay, so I'm going to choose you because you will, you've earned it or you will earn it or you will do good with this. You, you were made out of bad clay, so there's not really much help for you, so I'm not going to choose this clay for honorable reasons. Because they had the same lump, the same clay. It's not good clay. Let's make something good with this. Bad clay, oh, that's a waste. Let's just, just do something in our spare time. Let a five-year-old play with that one. He, he looks at the same lump of clay in which we could determine from Scripture is all bad. Sinful from the time of birth. Not one chooses him. And from this bad lump of clay goes, 
I'm going to choose to make some of this beautiful vessels of mercy. I'm going to choose to make some of this a beautiful vessel of mercy. And so he does. I know this is hard for some of us. It's hard to receive this. But Josh, if God is truly loving, then why does he not save everybody? If he's truly good, why doesn't he save everybody? It challenges for us the very definition, the narrative that we've created in our mind of what is good and what is loving, what is right. And again, we have this question of, do you trust me? Trust me on this. Allow me to ask you this question for consideration. Is it possible in however many years of experience you have in life, is it possible that you don't have as good of a grasp on what is just and good and right as you think you do? Is it possible that you don't have as good of a grasp on it as the eternally wise and just and good God? See, Josh, that question feels a little leading. It should. Because the answer should be a simple, yeah, that is possible. It's possible I don't know as much as God knows. Just as that question should be understood by my six-year-old when I ask him that about him and I. And yet, just like my six-year-old, my answer is often, no, I don't think that's possible. I know, I know a lot. I know a lot. I know it's good, God, and that doesn't sound good to me. I know it's just, and that doesn't sound just. Just ask yourself, is that possible that God knows what is just and good more than we do? Verses 22 and 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, um, excuse me, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul takes it a step further and he gives us reasoning. I love that he doesn't just say, here's how salvation works, God chooses, and then leave it to us. But he goes, and there's a reason behind this. God is not aimless in this. He has a purpose in this. And his purpose that we see here, the reason in which he prepares some as vessels of wrath and some as vessels of mercy is so that his glory, the riches of his glory, may be made known in the fullest to the vessels of mercy. And God actually has a purpose that some are saved and some are not, and the purpose is that we who are saved might know to the fullest and richest his mercy, his glory. And I know that answer for some of us goes, that doesn't help me at all. That actually makes me more angry at God. His 
primary concern is that I would know his glory, not saving people, because many of us come to this conversation with the worldview that what is foremost on the mind of God and the will of God is the salvation of all. And and it makes sense because we see this in Scripture, that he wills for none to perish, but all to have everlasting life. How can that be true and this be true? The answer is he has to will something more. He has to have a will that is greater than that will. Terrible illustration. Falls so short. But I will to eat ice cream every day. I will a lot more to be healthy. Right? The idea of two wills. You can have eight, one will and another will that's greater than said will. Now, whether you come to this argument believing that salvation is by free will, by choice, or you come to it believing it's by election, we both believe that he has a will that is greater than his will to save all people. If you come to the conversation with the belief that his, he wills to save all people, but, but he does so by giving you a choice to be saved, then what you believe he wills more than the salvation of all people is for you to have the choice. He gave you a choice in that view. And he must will that choice, the freedom of that choice, more than he actually wills your salvation. Because he put it in your hands, not his, to save. The argument breaks down at some point for us because we always have to go, if God's ultimate, his greatest will is to save all people, then he's actually not doing enough to do that. We, we can look around and just go, not everyone's being saved, so he's obviously failing at what he wills the most to do. Why isn't he knocking people off their horse like he did Saul in the New Testament? Why is he not riding on walls like he did with his finger in the Old Testament? Why is he not sending angels? Why is he trusting us, his church, as his source of gospel advance? Maybe he thought that was a great plan, but where's the in-game modifications? That's not working. Let me switch plans. Gabriel, get down there now. But there has to be this greater will. So if you believe in choice and free will, then you believe that choice is the greater will of God's. He puts people's destiny in their own hands to choose if they want it or not. Or you believe in election, which we would believe that it is his glory that is his greater will. Glory is his greater will. That his glory would be known to the absolute fullest by those whom he saves. And somehow, by objects of wrath facing the wrath of God in destruction those whom he does save will see his glory to such a greater degree than we would have had he saved everyone. Because again, that's our argument, right? God, I think you're wrong. I would think you're more glorious if you saved everybody. But God knows our heart. He knows the deepest thoughts we have. He knows mankind and he knows eternity and in his eternal wisdom, he knows that the best way for his glory to be seen It's the salvation of some and not others. And we see his hand say, do you trust me? Do you trust me in this? 
verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where I was, it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of these sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have all been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Paul looks around him and he sees that there are flocks of Gentiles coming to believe and that the Jews are rejecting Jesus and only a small portion, a remnant of them are accepting Jesus. And Paul goes, this is evidence of God's faithfulness. This is what he said would happen. There is still a remnant. It's evidence of his faithfulness. And there are herds of Gentiles coming into the gospel. It's evidence of his faithfulness. He said this would happen. Do you see it, church? What he said he would do, whom he said he would save, he's saving the very people he said he would save. Those who weren't beloved, those who were not loved, now they're beloved. Those who are not his people are now his people. But those who are far off are now being called his children. He saves whom he has said he saves, he would save. And church, I just want to encourage you in this. You were not his people. In your sin and in your rebellion, far off, objects of wrath, and in that very place, in the very place of your sin and your rebellion, unable to climb your way out, unable to crawl yourself into obedience, unable to make yourself appear lovely, in that very place, he looked at you and he goes, mine. He looked at you and he goes, chosen, beloved, my child, my son. In the midst of your sin, he looks at you and he says, mine. Be encouraged by that church. He did not choose you because you did anything that made you worth choosing. And he won't toss you back because you do anything that makes you unworth keeping. He simply looks at those who were not his and says, mine. Paul looks around in verse 27. And he sees this remnant. He sees this large amount of Jews and a small amount having faith. And because we've already read the beginning of nine, I imagine his heart is filled with so much sorrow in this moment. I think it reads that way. The beginning of chapter nine, if you remember, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
Paul looks around at Israel, at the herds of Israel not believing in Jesus and the small amount believing, and he's moved to sorrow and unleashing anguish over this. And he goes, I would give up my very own salvation if they could be saved. And he calls on the Spirit as a testimony that that is what he truly wills. He's not just, this isn't hyperbole. Paul would literally give up his own salvation so that others may be saved because he has such deep sorrow that his people who have received the law and received the prophets and have seen God's promises don't believe in God's salvation in Jesus. See, this passage in Romans 9 brings for the believer both tremendous sorrow at the same time as incredible joy. It's a passage that calls us to exhale sorrow and inhale joy. Sorrow that there are numbers of people who are not yet saved. And inhale joy that God has promised to save exactly who he will save. He won't fail. It's not left up to anyone else. A sorrow and a joy that Paul sees. And he says in verse 27, I see the numbers not believing. But look at how he comforts himself with the words of Isaiah in verse 29. He says, the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring. We would have all been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I see so many not believing, so few believing. God, why are more not believing? Why does it appear you've chosen so few here? Oh, but if it were not for your grace and keeping some and choosing some, none of us would have ever chosen you. We are too sinful and wicked. All of us would have been objects of wrath. So thank you. Thank you for choosing us. Do you feel his sorrow and his joy? So church, what do we do with this? First, I would call on us, church, today to be floored by grace, just to marvel at grace. Had he not chosen you, you never would have believed. Left up to your own, you would never choose him. And in his grace, he looked at you, though there was nothing that made you worth choosing, and he simply chose you for his own pleasure and glory. Marvel at that. If you have placed your faith in Jesus... Be amazed, because that is not your doing. Secondly, be burdened. Be burdened for those who are not yet believers. Exhale the sorrow today. Remember that Paul writes, for the sake of unifying the gospel, to be sent with the gospel for those who have not heard. There's a burden for those who are not yet believers in Paul's words. In chapter nine, verse two, Paul has this unleashing sorrow and anguish 
He's burdened. He would trade his own salvation for them. There's burden for those who are not yet believers. In chapter 10, verse 1, next week, Paul's going to call us and he's going to say of himself that he prays for those who are not yet believers, that they would become believers. Right? And this prayer is not lost. It's not what God chooses, so why even pray? No, your prayer for unbelievers is one of the means by which God uses to work within the hearts of unbelievers for their salvation. And he's praying for them. And he's praying with faith, knowing that God will save. He doesn't have to pray going, I hope he does something today. He doesn't pray and God says, well, I'll see what I can do, but it's not really in my hands. He prays and God goes, yes, I will save. He's burdened to the point of prayer. And then to steal from us in two weeks, in chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, he's not just burdened to the point of prayer, but he's burdened to the point of proclaiming the gospel, of preaching the gospel. Because in chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, he tells them, listen, there is no way for someone to believe unless they hear the gospel. And there's no way for them to hear the gospel unless they're told the gospel. And there's no way for them to be told the gospel unless someone is sent to them with the gospel. So go, be sent, proclaim, right? When he says preach, we're not just talking pulpit. This is part of that. We're talking parents to your children and and workers to those who you work with and, 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 and brother to sister and to siblings and to parents. And we're talking as you engage people and you share Jesus, Jesus uses that. The spirit uses that to move within the hearts of those whom he has chosen. And you might just get the joy of being a part of his saving work in someone's life. And we know, church, we know that if we proclaim the gospel, he will save. Not everyone, but he has promised to save. He is faithful to do so. He's never failed to save. And so we can proclaim, trusting that he is good to save. And then to the unbeliever. My prayer for you is that you would simply marvel at God's God's grace towards you if you will believe. Say, what if I'm not chosen? Come to him. Come to Jesus in faith and he will never turn you away. If you desire salvation, if you long to be made right with God, and if you come to him through faith in Jesus, the answer is unequivocally yes. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.